just so that we have plenty of time to talk. <laughs> Too much or not enough. That's all right. <laughs> Are you going to be able to fit in there? I know it is a little cozy. Okay. Hi. Uh, I think we're going to get started. So if people want to sit down, now's a good time to do so. Okay. So you know that when you speak, just bring, share the microphone. Yeah. Okay. Hello? Can everyone hear me clearly? Okay. Hi and welcome uh, to tonight's panel discussion of representations of AIDS in the press. I'm David Levitt and I'll be moderating tonight. Uh, before we start, there are a number of people and institutions that I want to thank who've had a hand in putting this event together. First, the Pan American Center, which is sponsoring the event, and there in particular, Pamela Pierce, who isn't here tonight, but who put an enormous effort behind this evening. Uh, Karen Kennerly, Penn's Executive Director, and Liz Sharp, Gary LaMarche, Sean Martin, and Emily Hasty, all of whom are here tonight orchestrating things behind the scenes. I also want to thank Gregory Kolovakos of the New York State Council on the Arts Literature Program, whose idea this panel was in the first place the Metropolitan Duane Church, which has been kind enough to offer us the space. And finally, for a variety of tips, suggestions, and very useful criticisms, Douglas Crimp, Mark Harrington, Larry Kramer, Sarah Schulman, and Liz Tracy, all of whom helped me a lot in putting this together. And finally, I want to thank the panelists themselves for taking the time to be with us here tonight in spite of some very hectic schedules. So, on to the introductions. Um, there is going to be five of the six panelists are here. The six will be arriving at around 8.30. Um, I'm going to go from right, from this side to that side, right to left. Uh, our first panelist is one of the most highly respected science writers in the country, particularly on the subject of AIDS. She's the author of The Truth About AIDS, Evolution of an Epidemic, published by Holt, and has reported on AIDS for the New York Native, The Village Voice, the San Francisco Sentinel, Red Book, the Windy City Times, among other publications, and she's currently completing a new book, Virus, Agents of Change, and Fetner. Uh, next to her, from the New York Times, uh, an editorial writer who has written about AIDS and science for the editorial page, Nicholas Wade. A reporter who has covered AIDS for the Gay Community News, the New York Native, the Village Voice, the Washington Blade, and who now uh, works at UPI, and who is responsible for some of the earliest coverage of issues concerning women and AIDS, Peg Byron. In absentia, but arriving at 8.30, one of New York's most respected AIDS clinicians, a primary care physician whose title is AIDS Assessment Coordinator at the Woodhull Medical Center in Brooklyn, Dr. Iris Davis, <laughs> who will be here. Uh, like most people who are on the front lines of AIDS, she has an extremely busy schedule, and uh, it was impossible for her to get here at 7.30, but I thought it was, we thought it was important enough for her to be here that we're going to make a little break in the proceedings when she arrives. Uh, next to the absent Dr. Davis, uh, the author of Faggots, the 
play The Normal Heart, and most recently, Reports from the Holocaust, The Making of an AIDS Activist, the co-founder of the Gay Men's Health Crisis and founder of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, Larry Kramer. And finally, at the far end of the table, the editor and publisher of the New York Native, Christopher Street, Theater Week and Opera Monthly, Charles Ortleb. I'm going to go through the preliminaries fairly quickly so we can get on to the business at hand. The format for this panel is going to be quite simple. First, I'm going to outline some of the basic questions which I hope we'll be able to tackle tonight. And then I've asked each of the panelists to make a brief introductory statement if he or she chooses. And the rest of the evening will be devoted to questions from the floor. The only exception, as I said, will be from 8.30 to 9 o'clock when Dr. Davis is going to join us, at which point we'll temporarily interrupt whatever discussion we're having in order to listen to her presentation and then go back to the original format. Although I would recommend that anyone who has particular questions for Dr. Davis ask them then, or questions uh, relating to what are really her fields of expertise, that is uh, the AIDS epidemic among drug users and in the black and Hispanic communities. Um, a plea. We're dealing with very emotional issues here. And so I want to ask both the panelists and the audience to try to be as polite as possible, to remember that our biggest enemies are not in this room or on this stage, and to try to keep in mind the larger agreements which bind us together as well as the differences which divide us. I'd also like everyone to remember that the topic for the evening is AIDS and the press. And while that necessarily will lead to discussions of other issues, particularly social and medical issues, I'd like us to try as hard as we can to focus for tonight on issues specific to the press. I'm also going to ask that all questions and comments from the floor be limited to 90 seconds, and that the panelists try to limit their responses to three minutes. This isn't a rule I want to enforce, so I hope you'll enforce it yourselves. But if someone goes on way too long, I'm going to cut people off. So here's a brief summary of some of the topics I hope we'll be able to discuss tonight. First of all, the coverage of AIDS by the press in the early days of the epidemic how the press has handled medical issues surrounding AIDS, in particular the reporting of alternative theories of AIDS transmission and challenges to the assumption that the HIV virus is indeed the cause of AIDS, homophobia and AIDS coverage, how the press has handled AIDS among women, how the AIDS epidemic in the black and Hispanic community has been handled by the press as opposed to the way the epidemic among gay men has been handled, and finally, what happens when the press does more than report and becomes a vehicle for, cha for challenging official information or for challenging some other kind of point of view. I'm thinking, for example, of the articles by Kristen Loomis, which appeared recently in, the New in New York Magazine and the Village Voice, attacking Dr. Stephen Joseph, the health commissioner's statistics. Uh, or alternately, what happens when the press becomes a vehicle for the dissemination of treatment information? Is this a role the press should have in regard to a health epidemic? So as we begin our comments, I'm going to go alphabetically, starting with Peg Byron. Hi. Um, uh, this morning, I noticed it was um, somewhat pertinent to today. There was a, an odd notice, or an item rather, in the New York Times, thanks, that said um, NBC had lost its major sponsors for a program called Roe v. Wade, a debate, uh, a dramatization about the AIDS debate among high school students. And um, some fundamentalist minister had organized threats of a um, protested or some kind of boycott of the uh, 
advertisers if they supported this program, and so they were pulling out. And it just struck me that if something, this supposedly was a balanced program, and if something like this um, can't get widespread support for a network program, then it's pretty unlikely that we can expect widespread um, AIDS education through television media. And unfortunately, about, well, the latest study I've seen was about a year ago, and about 56% of Americans get their AIDS information from television. And another 24% get it from the newspapers, and the rest of them get it from here and there. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing to keep in mind when we consider what the press is doing, that most people are getting their news not from the newspapers that we, you know, have several choices of in New York City every day, and that uh, the bulk of Americans are getting it um, hit and miss on, you know, uh, seconds of time on uh, television news programs at night. Um, I think that there are basically you know, two roles that the press falls into when it comes to um, AIDS presentation, AIDS coverage. And um, there's, you know, one of the more essential roles of the press, which is reporting and investigation. Um, and that's been an area that I, um, it seems to me that, uh, uh, at least in the New York media, that we've been fairly weak on and probably the um, uh, vehicles like the New York Times has led on, which in some ways is surprising for someone coming from uh, the alternative you know, so-called so community press, um, you know, that we're way behind the, the New York Times on something like that seems odd to me. Um, uh, however, I, while sometimes the New York Times is presenting some of the policy problems, some of the service problems that AIDS has brought, that basically AIDS is now falling into, um, is being identified with the underclass, that it's shifted from, uh, is, it's acknowledged pretty widely for the last year that it's shifted from gay white males to black Hispanic drug using communities, that um, I think that it gives the public more of a, uh, more distancing um, than before, and more of a, um, perpetuates that us and them category that people are more comfortable with in dealing with AIDS. I think it's range, as I don't have to really explain to everyone here, but it's range from hysteria like we're all going to get AIDS to uh, ghettoization that only they are going to get AIDS. And um, various events, whether it's Rock Hudson or misinterpretation of pediatric um, transmission studies, uh, Cosmopolitan, Masters and Johnsons, that it uh, waxes and wanes in those areas. Um, it's uh, certainly sexiest when it seems like everyone's going to get it, and uh, the, uh, uh, our sources, the government, the health agencies, the scientists have um, really wavered on that question, in fact. I think the, um, the media jumps on whatever the newest pronouncement is, but uh, between the World Health Organization to the New York City Health Department, those estimates have varied widely. There's been, uh, there was a point when WHO was estimating up to 100 million people um, would eventually get AIDS or certainly were infected, and they adjusted that more recently down to about 5 million, 10 million tops. And that kind of change back and forth, it makes it, uh, it's difficult for the press, and I think it's difficult for everybody's credibility. It's, um, people would prefer that things were a little bit uh, uh, more black and white and 
uh, headlines usually don't sell with nuances, but that's the position that we've been in. Um, and the other area that I wanted to talk about was um, the press as a health educator. It's not a role that we're trained in, it's not one that I don't think we're very good at, and it's something that's fallen to us de facto in many ways. I know from watching the UPI wire that in the smaller bureaus and the outlying areas that there's uh, a real firm belief that HIV infection means you have AIDS. And that's stated that way, even if you question the reporter, that's not what they meant, they knew the difference, that that equation is, is constantly made. It, it's um, uh, something that I think has been so well presented, so strongly presented, that is to say, to the public that it's not a question of whether HIV causes AIDS, but that it is, in fact, having AIDS. Um, and I think it's part, it reflects a uh, kind of assumption that anyone who's infected has been written off. Um, I th that's, you know, when, if we're talking about how the media is presenting AIDS, I think that that's a, a sub, uh, subtext to that inaccuracy. Um, but in addition, I don't think that the media is where we want to get a lot of our safer sex information. I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's not the appropriate role. It's not uh, a reliable source. It's, not a, it's certainly not a, a detailed source. As, you know, up until 1934, I think CBS refused to even allow the words syphilis or gonorrhea on the air. Um, and so that's, you know, th that void just shows a weakness in that, in the, um, in the media, but it, it doesn't mean that the media can respond to it, can fix it somehow. Um, I guess that the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, the, uh, the two extremes that the press plays to, the um, we're all going to get AIDS and the um, just they are going to get AIDS, are to me, I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think that the, the idea that everyone's going to get AIDS sounds to me like um, we're all going to get cancer, everything causes cancer, and it, it's, a, it's a kind of fatalism uh, that's, you know, that's another form of denial. Um, and, uh, and I think that that, uh, as far as women are concerned, that, um, that I think women have been like sort of the biggest losers in that debate to a great extent. I mean, I think that um, you know, we've been kind of like the ping pong balls of that, you know, like vector question. Um, and it, it often goes back to, you know, are we talking about, you know, good women or bad women? Uh, if they're people who are overlapping with the drug using scene or if they're women who, um, you know, behave themselves and, uh, you know, stay at home like they're supposed to and maybe their husbands are going to bring it home because they were on some kind of a trip and they, you know, ran into a prostitute or something, that um, the risk for women has been uh, the murkiest, I think. Uh, even now, I think you talk to women in New York who read a lot about AIDS, who um, have a lot of exposure to this information, and there's a great deal of uncertainty, like personal uncertainty, uh, because of all the conflicting reports in that area, and the underreporting on women, too. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, like for instance, that you know, the New York Times said its story is that uh, young woman who claimed to have just had one sexual contact with a guy in bang, she got AIDS, and um, you know those kinds of extreme cases that you know seem very questionable on their face anyway. But uh, you know, 
set up this, uh, you know, like hysterical situation that uh, there's no further information on. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's certainly, I mean, like I would question, you know, like whether or not that was really the case for her, but I mean, for uh, women in general who are really anxious on this topic, it kind of leaves them, you know, hanging without anywhere to turn. So I think that that's been a very big gap for us. I think the um, last thing I wanted to say is just I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, as AIDS has shifted um, more heavily into the poorer communities, I think that um, you've, you've seen a dip in the quantity of AIDS coverage. I think the last Nexus um, study I saw in that uh, uh, that was done by, um, I think it was a CDC Nexus review, uh, showed that 1988 and the latter part of 1988 had um, a big dip in the amount of AIDS coverage, and I think it seems related to um, a shift in focus. Um, the AIDS coverage was sort of old news in terms of what we already knew about it, and what was new about it was that it was going into these poor communities. Well, you know, urban health problems among the poor are not very interesting, and it just falls into this category of an intractable social ill that um, people are very used to throwing up their hands about. Um, it's a very frustrating thing in New York in particular, I think, that there's a tendency to be kind of jaded about, you know, one horror to the next. So, you know, it gets reported, and how much more is going to get done? I mean, there's only so much the press can actually do in some cases, you know, beyond stating that this is what's happened. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe people would feel differently. Does the role end there? You know, is there anything else that we're supposed to do? I don't think there is, actually. I think that you know, we can do a follow-up and see what happens or doesn't happen, but uh, in some ways it's out of our hands at that point. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Peg. Um, Anne, you're next. Can you pick the microphone? I'm glad we're going alphabetically. The last time I was on the stage with Larry Kramer, I had to follow one of his polemics <laughs> in which he had the whole thing rocking. And I was standing back there thinking, how do you follow this? <laughs> how do you follow this? <laughs> we got out of it live. Uh, I have to read. I don't know what I think till I see what I've written. Yeah, can everybody hear? No, no, you can't hear me? Okay. Can you hear me? If you ever can't hear, feel free to make that clear. Please do. Uh, by including me in this panel, David Levitt has forced me to do something I really wasn't very enthusiastic about, and that's to look back over the eight years that I've been involved in AIDS and think about the way the epidemic has been characterized in the press. But when you take on a task like that, it makes you stop and think about things that you take for granted, and this, this certainly has been no exception. In thinking about this last night, I'd I see a sort of pattern to the reporting of AIDS that seems to easily fall into the stages that life does. There was a short, intense infancy, a longer, tumultuous adolescence, and now we're heading into AIDS as a mature, regular beat as far as the press is concerned. Old age will eventually come when the disease is mentioned the same way smallpox and polio are as an example, a success story, the departure point for many innovations in medical science. God willing, that will not be too long. 
Much of the energy that drove AIDS in the infancy was supplied by Kramer, who kept saying things that nobody wanted to hear. I haven't always agreed with him, but his strident, passionate tirade surely have to be credited with calling attention to the emerging syndrome in 1981 and 82 and saving the lives of many of those who listened. Not many did. It was incredibly hard to get any attention for AIDS early on. And we were involved in something that we perceived as the medical story of the century. But even my publisher, despite the fact he had a considerable amount of money sunk in this book, thought AIDS was just a passing fluke. I was being humored. During the energetic early adolescence, those of us who were writing about AIDS did so with passion, demanding that attention be paid. We tried everything. We tried to shame, to catch the conscience of the country, to teach, while we were trying to keep up with our own need to learn the esoteric new science that was evolving. Before long, even the Times, which I'm told had to call an editorial conference to approve the use of the word gay instead of homosexual. They came around, and I think thanks in large part to Nick Wade here, who I credit with keeping his folks relatively honest and responsive after their early indifference. All except Lawrence Altman, MD, whose close ties to the CDC has been infinitely uh, skewing a lot of his articles. But certainly the Times was infinitely better then, and it still is, than the supposedly liberal Washington Post. <laughs> there were all kinds of unanswered scientific and social questions, and they were brought up, argued, discussed, and fought over largely in the gay press. Jim DeRamo and Larry Mass turned their advanced degrees on AIDS and raised important questions. Daryl Yates wrist, and I tried to do the same, much of it in the New York native, which has done some good and which has done some bad. Surprisingly and disappointingly, the voice hasn't been much of a factor in this. The thinking magazines ran some offbeat articles, and the offbeat magazines at least talked about sex and various exotica. And even Lyndon LaRouche and William Buckley have served the function of bringing into the open the right wing's subterranean agenda, which I'm happy to say never really went anywhere. For years, a handful of us insisted that, to paraphrase, there wasn't any news fit to print if it didn't concern AIDS. It was our overwhelming issue, and those of us involved in it demanded attention for an illness that at the time was affecting a very few people. We attacked virtually everybody, every institution, particularly the federal government, from our pretend president and his cabinet offices to the lowliest epidemiologist skulking about trying to prove that it was amyl nitrite poppers or various behaviors that were responsible for AIDS. That's what had caused it. We finally left behind most of the smarmy tittering about lifestyles and the disinformation that marked and marred earlier reporting on AIDS. The waves of panic over the possibility of casual transmission that encouraged picketing schools and calls for quarantine have subsided and virtually disappeared. Really, once Surgeon General Coop brought out his report on AIDS, the disease became sufficiently respectable for the major media to treat it in a routine of sometimes a dumbheaded way. But after years of living what is, with what has often been like having tunnel vision, with all of my attention focused on AIDS, finally, 
thank God I am able to look back at the lousy, indifferent, inaccurate, too late, and often smirking press coverage in a broader context. And I found some sort of surprising things. For one, I realized that I'd long been in the habit of barely glancing at news of various catastrophes and situations. I'd scan articles that before AIDS would have galvanized me into some sort of writerly or social action and turn the page looking for more AIDS news. And I finally appreciate that people concerned about other issues have probably been as dumbfounded by my lack of knowledge and interest in their issues as I was for many years by the blank eyes of people I've harangued about AIDS. But you know, despite the considerable competition for attention, the ecology, politics, the Russians, the Middle East, crime, drugs, school, and all of that. An amazing amount of press coverage has been devoted to this disease. Although I've hated 90% of what I've read and 40% of what I've written, still a lot of us here tonight can say that we managed to stir things up, to kick sand in a lot of faces, and get aids of news around with much greater success than one would have thought possible. Networks do carry some intelligent AIDS programs and reports, and for a wonder, they do it without resorting to those old canned phrases that we used to hear every time the subject was brought up. And now, what was the task of a few trying to galvanize public opinion, demanding answers and calls to account, is moving into a new phase of maturity. The combativeness that appropriately characterized early AIDS reporting has turned into the work of advocacy groups that now legitimately speak for many of the affected populations, a task that as a writer I am very glad to relinquish. To you all, and there are many of you here tonight, who have taken up important issues such as patient care, teaching, and assuring that better new therapies are made available as quickly as possible. There is strength in numbers, and the numbers have become impressive. One cannot participate in an act-up demonstration, a walk the great quilt, without realizing how very, very far we have come in these eight years. And the absurdities that once were the hallmark of most writing about AIDS largely have been laid to rest, and for that we can be grateful. Because as Voltaire said, as long as people believe in absurdities, they will continue to commit atrocities. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Larry, you're next. Thanks. Um, I'd like just to. I find it perplexing that this, that the attendance is so bad tonight and that most of the people I see are from ACT UP and from the gay community and that Penn, which is sponsoring this and which has uh, sent out a mailing to some 2,500 people, has produced so few attendees. Um, I have written in the past my displeasure at the extreme homophobia of this organization, Penn, which will do so much to fight for uh, just about every other threatened species, but when it comes to AIDS and when it comes to gay people, 
uh, they simply are not there for us. Uh, to take the seven points that David raised, uh, coverage by press in the early days, um, I must be careful that I don't get too worked up in my anger. There was, as we all know, precious little coverage of AIDS in the early days. The early days, to me, go through yesterday. Um, I still don't think the press coverage is terribly good. But the early days, we must never forget that for a long, crucial period, there was only one AIDS reporter, period. His name was Dr. Lawrence Mass, and he wrote for The Native. Uh, Nathan Thane joined him shortly thereafter, writing for The Advocate and my occasional pieces. The New York Times, which um, I, I should say that my anger at The Times is not directed at my fellow panelist, Nick Wade, whose work I think has been exemplary on the editorial page, one of the few pages in that newspaper which has shown understanding and compassion to the AIDS epidemic. I think we must never, ever forget, we must never, ever forget the shameful record of the times in, these, in the early days of the epidemic, just as Jewish historians are now more than adequately and accurately detailing the shameful record of the times in reporting uh, the early atrocities by the Nazis against the Jews, uh, the first time that Hitler's invasion of Poland was mentioned in the New York Times. It was on page 20. And the New York Times, of course, was and still is owned by Jews. Um, I think we must remember and never forget that during the first 19 months of the epidemic, those precious days when things were getting out of hand, the Times wrote about AIDS a total of seven times each time on an inside page. January 3rd, 1981, which was the first uh, Dr. Altman article, uh, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals, that appeared on page 20. The second article on uh, page 9 of the August 29th, 1981 edition. The third article on, uh, in section 3 on May 11th, 1982. The, third, the fourth article, June 18th, 1982, page 8 of section 2. The fifth article, August 8th, 1982, page 31, at which time there were 505 cases. The sixth article on January 6th, 1983, page 17 of section 2, at which time there were 891 cases. And the seventh article, what I call the Craig Claiborne article, which appeared in the magazine of February 6, 1983, uh, at which point there were 958 cases. I call it the Craig Claiborne article because Mr. Claiborne, in one of the more heroic acts, perhaps unrecorded, a gay man took Abe Rosenthal out to lunch and said, now listen, Abe, you really do have to start reporting this and he authorized, uh, uh, or so we are told, the famous article in the magazine section, which gave the imprimatur that it was then, uh, 19 months later, 958 cases later, okay for the other papers around the world to follow suit. 
Now, as bad as this is, we must compare it to something that makes it even sound worse, which is during the three months of the Tylenol scare in 1982. The New York Times wrote about it a total of 54 times. There were only seven cases, and the Times wrote about Tylenol on October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, i.e. every fucking day during, <laughs> during the month of October, followed by November 2nd, 5th, 6th, 9th, 12th, 17th, 21, 22, 25, and December 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 8th, 10th, 14th, 15th, 19th, 25th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th. Four of these articles appeared on the front page. Total number of cases, seven. 19 months of the AIDS epidemic, total number of cases, 958. Total number of articles, seven, not one of which was on the front page. Now you see how terribly difficult it was and has been for us to get the world to write about this. If the Times, all the news that's fit to print, the paper that, for better or for worse, and quite often it is better, the rest of the world looks to for leadership in this particular case, while we were dying, it had its head in the sand. Um, I have made no secret of my hatred toward Mr. Rosenthal. He is no longer there. Um, I don't think that the Times reporting is I don't know how to put it. There's more of it. There's more of it everywhere. Anne has said an amazing amount of press coverage has been devoted to this disease. But no one investigates. Nobody writes with any depth. No one, with every story, with every drug, with every treatment, there is an enormous story. There is an enormous scandal. There is an enormous untold story that in the old days, journalists like Walter Lippmann, uh, I.F. Stone, the kind of people that we grew up with would dig and get the facts on. What has happened to that kind of investigative journalism? Instead, we have doctors, like my least favorite Dr. Lawrence Altman of the New York Times, to whom fell the responsibility of writing about this AIDS. Uh, he is their medical correspondent. He is a doctor. He used to work for the CDC. When confronted, why did you only write nine articles? And, in, in, in 19 months, he said, well, there wasn't really anything much more to write about. The cases were happening, nothing was known, we couldn't find the virus, whatever. Meanwhile, they found enough to write about in the Tylenol epidemic. Um, I think that's shocking. To this day, the New York Times does not have a permanent AIDS reporter in Washington. Mr. Boffy, my second least favorite Times AIDS reporter, has miraculously after a singularly shameful record of reporting AIDS in Washington, been promoted to science editor of the whole paper. I don't understand things like that. Um, but then I don't understand a lot of things. Um, when articles appear in any paper, they are rewritten press releases from the government from the NIH, from the CDC, from whomever is putting out the latest discovery. 
they will write and say, oh, Dr. Fauci. Well, you all know how I feel about Dr. Fauci. Well, maybe you don't, but we're not talking about AIDS in the NIH today. Um, we'll put out a press release saying we, have, we are studying X. Mayor Koch will put out a press statement saying we are spending Y. These kind of stories come out all the time. Everybody prints them just as they come to them. No one calls up anybody to get the other side of the story. Why has the press become so conservative? What happened to getting balanced reporting? There's a new treatment out there which, which Dr. Altman wrote about after having been pummeled into finally shamed into writing about it because just about every other paper in the country was writing about it and he had to write about it, which was the, the cucumber, the, the, the compound Q. Okay, what we're discovering about compound Q, why do we have to do all the reporting and the investigating ourselves? What we are finding out uh, and, uh, and Richard Goldstein, who's doing uh, a very important article on it for The Voices, found out that this man has known about this drug for two years. We're supposed to sit around and die while, for some reason, two years has miraculously disappeared. Now, that has happened with every single drug. Years, months, precious time just evaporates. It was two years before we found out that the NIH uh, uh, was not spending the money for, for, for AIDS treatment protocols. We didn't find out about it in the New York Times. We actually found out about it in the Wall Street Journal. Um, <laughs> why is the Times so bad? I attack the Times because it's the mother church, and it is thought of as the mother church. And the mother church is very wanting. As I understand it, the number two of, of David's points was medical coverage. Well, part of the problem with this issue is that you can't separate medical coverage from political coverage or social coverage. It's all together. This is the most political disease since I don't know what that has come down the pike. So you go and you say to Bafi, why didn't you report about all of these internecine arguments at, at NIH? He says, well, I can't because I'm the science reporter. The New York Times is compartmentalized. It has become a bureaucracy like everything else in our, in our sad, tragic world. There are desks. The science desk is not allowed to, separate, to write what the Metropolitan Desk is going to write about, is not allowed to write about what the Washington Desk is going to write about, is not allowed to write about what the National Desk is going to write about, is not allowed to write about what the magazine section is going to write about. Consequently, nothing gets written about. What you get has been watered down so thoroughly and therefore papers around the country, media around the country, all follow suit. If the mother church is not, is not passing out the catechism, all the other churches just don't say anything. And it is dreadful. Every reporter that calls me from around the country at one point or another, you have to start from square one and give the basic course in AIDS 101. To this day, and I got called from someone from the New York Times Magazine today about they want to do an AIDS story. And I had to start from 1981 and go through the whole history of everything. Now, I mean, what, what, 
what is this all about? And, and eight years into the epidemic, and the, and the mother church still doesn't know? Homophobia and, and AIDS coverage. I think whatever the word is, that's a, what's the literary term for, <laughs> huh? For, for some, I mean, it, it, it simply is a fact. If this had happened to Barbara Bush's son, if this had happened to Ron Reagan Jr., we would not be sitting here tonight. It is simple and factually as simple as that. Uh, women, blacks, Hispanics, the only, the only reporting that's done in connection with these populations is something that I find equally as repellent, which is poor them. If I read another Jane Gross poor them story in the, New York, in the New York Times, her bleeding heart just oozing with sympathy for poor black women and poor Hispanic women and poor homeless women and poor straight women who are not getting it. It's them from on high feeling sorry for all us poor little dying souls below. And I resent that terribly. Has the New York Times reported the two most important C has anybody reported the two most important <laughs> CDC reports that have come out in the last, I don't know how long, that the number of straight cases, what I call, they're going to call me the general population, if they're going to call, if they're not going to include me in the general population, it's what I call white bread cases, which are people who are not connected to gay or bisexual sex, to, to drugs, or to uh, transfusions, i.e. white bread cases. Uh, they have risen 100% in the last year, from 900 to 1,800 cases. That is appalling. Have you seen that on page one of the New York Times? Have you seen on the front page of the New York Times that the CDC has tested 20,000 college kids anonymously, and they have discovered that one out of 300 kids is already HIV positive? That is appalling. So how do we get the word around? Mother Church isn't going to tell anybody. We have, to, we have to have forums like this, and even members of Penn don't show up to hear it. How do we get the word around? I write essays. I write a book. The New York Times says, 10 years of temper tantrums. Are we supposed to lie down and die quietly? I think that's what they want us to do. There is no media challenging the accepted voice to get to point six. There simply is not. The, the woman in the voice and, the New York, and, and, and Chuck and myself and Ann, the few of us who are doing it, we simply are not heard. Never in my life have I been, I just don't think one voice can make a difference anymore. I really don't. The voice that makes a difference is the Pope and the Mother Church. Okay, there isn't any God. Thank you. Thank you, Larry.
well, I think there is a God. Um, and she's going to get us out of this mess. Um, let's just look at what the Mother Church is writing this week. Uh, I think this is an important sentence that we should probably consider throughout the evening from Larry, from Lawrence Altman. He says, could another AIDS virus soon appear, this time spreading relatively easily in coughs and sneezes? Where is that coming from? I mean, this is the new New York Times. I mean, what, what, are, they, what are they getting ready? What are they getting us ready for? That's what I want to know. I mean, this is, um, if that ever appeared in the native, they'd burn our offices down immediately. Um, I'll just tell a couple of stories, and then we can get on to the six questions, which we're going to discuss at length, I hope. Um, an editor in Atlanta named Charles Henderson goes to the Centers for Disease Control every week and gathers up press releases from their press office so that he can um, file stories for his CDC AIDS Weekly. And he was telling me a story that one day he walked into the office, and Don Barrett, who's the, the press officer there, was sitting there and counting up stories that had been written on various topics and making different graphs for the management of the CDC on AIDS so that they could know what, what information they would release to the public that would get the most play in the press. And when I heard that, I, I thought, is this how the CDC is going to play this game? You know, I mean, and I, I mean, I, this whole, the last eight years has been a rude awakening about how, our, how government science operates and, and how um, scientific press doesn't operate. I, I totally agree with Larry about um, the scientific press, that nobody, nobody, uh, nobody leaves their desk to go get a story. Um, uh, a good example is, is the story that we've been covering in The Native on uh, Dr. Shai Ching Lo, who is a, a researcher at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Um, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology is generally considered, uh, Nick can correct me on this if I'm wrong, uh, a fairly distinguished institution in terms of its ability to diagnose diseases. And I've, I, this, I've been covering this story, as you all know, for, for three years, ever since Larry Altman first broke it and never followed up on it, because I was curious about this large DNA virus that, that Lowe was working with, um, because I wondered whether it was indeed the, the, uh, the virus that probably gets several people in this room very hysterical, African swine fever virus, um, which Jane Tease had thought was the cause of AIDS. So I, I called Lowe in, in, three years ago after Waltman did his story, and he wouldn't take my calls. So I called him twice a week for like six months until he did talk to me, and finally I got the story and found out that using several million dollars of our government's money, uh, at this respected institution, he was really working on a uh, different hypothesis that a totally different virus than HIV is the cause of AIDS. And I think everyone in this room will agree that if HIV does not turn out to be the cause of AIDS, the implications are, are, are amazing in terms of treatment, epidemiology, vaccine, everything else. It's very important that we know ap with absolute certainty He recently published uh, two new papers, uh, one characterizing the virus a little bit and the other one on developing an animal, what I think is going to turn out to be an animal model for AIDS, which I think is, should be very exciting to anyone who's hoping that we can start testing some of these drugs on monkeys rather than ourselves. Um, and the, the press generally just waits to, just rewrites the, these medical journal articles so that the public understands them, but that's about it. They don't. 
they, then they call up low and they ask for an interview and they can't get an interview and that's it you know and I keep you know there's got to be there's got to be a more ambitious approach to to getting stories there's got to be a few more Jimmy Olsons and Lois Lanes out there <laughs> who you know go down go down to the um, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and just wait outside the door and, and get the story. What's going on down there? Um, Jonathan Quitney did a story on this on uh, fraud at the CDC. Uh, not fraud at the CDC, but there was there was somebody was tampering in one of their laboratories. And the way he got the story for the Wall Street Journal was he went down to the Centers for Disease Control and he spent a week in the bar across the street from the CDC waiting for people to come from the lab and he had a few beers and he found out what was really going on and then he went in and got the story. Um, the press is lazy, extremely lazy. You know, if they can't get someone on the phone to give them a quote, you know, that, they don't do the story. And, 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 and the end result of all this, as, as many of the readers and ex-readers of The Native know, is that I, I believe that we've got the wrong virus, we, you know, we've got the wrong treatment, and we've even got the wrong paradigm for this disease. And um, why don't I just leave it at that for now? I hope that the one thing that we will all agree on at this table and in the audience is that we need more press freedom so these issues can be debated and we can find out whether I'm wrong about this or not. Okay. Thank you, Chuck. I don't know how to begin. Uh, let me thank the previous uh, speakers for their kind remarks about the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> I thank Larry Kramer for his uh, uh, in, in encouraging words about the pieces we had on the editorial page. I, I do think my colleagues Larry Ortman and Bill Broffley have done a, a, a good job, and let, let me try and explain a little why. I, I think on, on any major issue you look at, not just AIDS, you will find the press lags in seeing its significance. Uh, and then even when it's seen the significance, you will find great fluctuations in coverage, excessive attention one week or month, and followed by weeks of ignoring it. That, that's just how the press works. It does it on every issue. Uh, and I think one shouldn't be too surprised that, uh, yes, it did it on AIDS. Uh, there should have been more coverage <laughs> sooner, uh, but it's not too surprising, I think, that there wasn't. And I think if you look in aggregate, can you speak a little louder? Maybe <coughs> I'm, I'm getting signals that people can't hear. Thank you. Okay. Uh, or just hold the microphone a little closer. It, it, it depends a lot what standard you wish to apply to to the coverage of AIDS or any other issue. Sure, the coverage has not been perfect, uh, but I think when you consider how complex the issue is. Uh, but looking back on it, the coverage of, of AIDS, uh, certainly in, in my own paper, has, has been at least uh, uh, adequate, and that the failings one can point to have not been so serious. Because as, as, as Anne Fetner mentioned, I, th I think you said, Anne, that 40% you, you, of what you've written you didn't like. Well, I hope we all have the humility to do that too. And the advantage, at least of working for a daily paper, is that you come back to issues again and again, and you can uh, correct the gaps and, and the faults and the misinterpretations. I think another test you can legitimately apply to how we've covered uh, AIDS is, is all the possibilities for horrible things happening in our society 
uh, about AIDS that did not, in fact, materialize. After all, at the early days, uh, when it was uh, even more, uh, <coughs> when, the, when the fear of the unknown was considerably greater than it is now, there was every opportunity for, for all kinds of, of mischief, uh, and yet we do not have a quarantine system here such as they have in Cuba. We, we avoided that mistake. We do not have mass testing. These things may sound horrific, but I think the, the press deserves at least a little bit of the credit for trying to in, inform people and influence people in such a way that we did avoid most of these things, and there were people who were advocating them. Uh, it, it's true, as uh, Peg Byron mentioned, that uh, uh, there, there have been reflections of, of hysteria in the press, but. I think, by and large, these are not things that the press invented. Rather, they were statements by people like the Surgeon General and, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which the press reported, and they have, they have every duty to report them. Uh, it, it was something, hysteria, hysteria was present in society's attitude toward the disease, and for reasons one could point to and understand. So the, the press, to that extent, is acting as, as, as a mirror when it reflects these attitudes. It, it's certainly true, as, as Larry Kramer mentioned, that <clears throat> there are times looking back on it when a story ought, which ought to have been on the front page was buried in the back pages. Um, but, but firstly, editors are, are fallible in their judgments. They just hope to catch up later. Uh, and, and secondly, there is no, there is no, uh, there is no subject, there is no interest, there is no subject where a, news, a national newspaper can give as much attention to it as, as people who are especially interested in it would like to see. And we don't write as much about Israel as Israelis would like to see. We don't write as much about Japan as, as we ought to in terms of our, our, our trade and balance with them. There are many areas where the, the volume of coverage is, is not correct or, or which an outsider can argue it's not correct. So I think the more, the more important question is did the story at least get one, cover, one, one coverage? And, and I think, by and large, most of the major issues in, a, in AIDS, most of the heterodox ideas, have, have got at least one uh, coverage in them. So for all those reasons, I, would, uh, I, I think that the coverage in the New York Times and in the press in general uh, has been satisfactory. Thank you. All right. Um, I think we have to appreciate the difficult position that Nick Wade is in here having to defend his paper against three other people, and I think he's done a good job. Uh, at this point, I would like to take questions from the floor, and the way that we're going to do this is there's a microphone set up here. Anyone who has a question, come up. You can form a line or whatever. Uh, this is where I'm going to get, I'm going to be real hard-ass. Comments and questions from the floor should be limited to 90 seconds. I'm going to enforce that. Responses from the panelists, uh, I would like to be limited to three minutes. Uh, I'm going to enforce that as well. This is not to shut anyone up. It's just that the point of this evening is to, provi is to, be, is to create a forum for a dialogue, not for lectures. Okay? So anyone who has a question or comment, as I said, I think we prefer questions to comments, but I don't want to exclude comments. Come on up. <laughs> so many enthusiastic takers. Here comes someone. Okay. 
to please explain to us why the New York Times has not mentioned um, Dr. Peter Duesberg's paper in the proceedings, which appeared at the beginning of February, a 10,000-word uh, piece with 196 references that argued that HIV was not the cause of AIDS. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't know specifically why we haven't mentioned that paper, but I do know we Excuse have... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to repeat the question. I, forgive me if I screwed this up. The question was for Mr. Wade to see if, to answer uh, why it was that the New York Times had not reported uh, Dr. Peter Duisberg's uh, recent papers. Uh, I, I would answer by saying we have we have reported on the the Duisberg theory, the Duisberg controversy. I don't know how many articles we've had, but I would argue that we've had enough, at least. Yeah, I have a question about uh, female-to-male transmission. As far as I can see, that's never actually been proved, and yet it seems to be generally accepted in the popular culture, and now we're seeing laws against prostitutes and this kind of thing based on that concept. Uh, I think maybe there, there might have been an, an effort earlier to uh, make heterosexuals feel that they were more at risk than they were, or a sense that men would not use condoms if they didn't feel that they were at risk. But um, I'm not, I don't understand why the press hasn't fully addressed this question. Um, anyone who wants to take that on, feel free. I, don't, I, I think there's not enough information to, to write anything definitive about it. I mean, it, you know, it's like early on when they were talking about the saliva uh, pass uh, the virus. And it's sort of hard to figure out. I mean, you usually, uh, when you get grown up, when you kiss somebody, you usually do more than just kiss them. So nobody ever really understood, you know, what was going on. And I think the same thing is true. Uh, uh, it, certainly in Africa, it's probably passing back and forth. There's, there's probably no question, but there is so much... There is so much um, disease that causes skin breaks and, and, and that kind of thing that, that infection it happens very easily in both directions with it. But you don't, you know, you can't really prove these things. The question that you're asking, in, in a definitive way, I, you've written about this, haven't you, Peg? Yeah. Okay. Stereo, please. Uh, Sarah and I have discussed this before, but uh, um, I had a conversation recently, in fact, with um, Polly Thomas of the uh, City Health Department, who uh, uh, is responsible, I think, for the women in AIDS uh, tracking. And uh, she said of the few cases of um, that they tracked down that where men claimed that their only source of exposure was through a female sex partner um, on closer examination that those cases fell apart. Um, and I think that the, the issue is something, it's probably, it's one of those cases where like the risk may be quite small, um, but it ha can't be disproven. I mean, it can't, and uh, I mean, certainly there are cases that uh, have been shown that uh, 
think I, and at least I think there were at least two cases reported in the uh, academic literature of lesbians who transmitted the virus among each between each other. Um, so I think what Sarah's talking about, though, which I find interesting and I think is you know like is a real issue is um, is this a real serious is this a serious problem and or is it being hyped for um, political reasons or s social political reasons by, you know, well-meaning people. And uh, I think that's a fair question in that, there, you know, the sense that um, men would otherwise be uh, even more, yet more reluctant to use condoms. And, you know, given that the syphilis rate in the last couple of years has gone up 50%, it seems like they still are very reluctant to use condoms. Um, and that this is, and, and for the kind of uh, um, having a positive effect on government policy, um, I don't think that anyone's gone out of their way to, you know, try to refute it by saying, look, it looks like it's nearly nothing, because it's not been shown that it's zero. So, I mean, no scientist comes out and says anything's, you know, got a chance of zero anyway, but, um, but I think that there is a way that, um, you know, the press has been complicit in that, um, you know, and, and so I think that's something that you can call to question, which is the, the risk is so, you know, like, it's so much greater for women being infected um, than the other way around. Um, but by keeping it alive that there's some possible chance that it could go in the other direction, that it gives, you know, the thinking that I think under that is that it gives more support to protecting women. But it, what you're saying is that because of the laws around prostitution that come out from this, um, you know, that, that it's really backfiring, and that might be something we want to consider. Anybody else? I couldn't agree more with uh, Larry Kramer's statements about that there is very little investigative journalism going on amongst the uh, mainstream press. I see very little of that beyond the press statements that come out. I get the same press statements from the FDA, from the NIH, and I see them appear in the New York Times and other papers around the country as written in the press release with no further checkups on, uh, on, on, this, on what is presented in the press release. They don't, I don't even think they call the uh, press spokespeople for follow-up based on the press release alone from the agency releasing it. Uh, the New York Times, I think you can sum up their coverage of AIDS in, uh, from their editorial about two and a half years ago, uh, which the headline was, Don't Panic Yet Over AIDS. It's still junkies and faggots who are getting it. I see that as a case. Uh, in terms of uh, Philip Boffey and Sandra Boodman of the Washington Post, I uh, read their coverage quite a bit. I followed the Presidential Commission as they did. I sat right near them during the final days of the Presidential Commission as the two of them sat there hysterically laughing over the proceedings that were going on. And uh, the next day reading there because of the laughability, the clown nature of what was going on amongst many members of that commission that should not have been there and only were picked because of their bigotry. And you did not see that story in the New York Times. You did not see it in the Washington Post. Instead, you saw these people represented as concerned citizens who were really on top of the matter. The reason why they came out with that report is because we forced them to come out with that report. The 600 witnesses who spoke before that commission, 85% 85 of those witnesses spoke with one voice, and that was a voice of compassion, the need for more research, so on and so forth. That 
The reason why that commission report came out the way it is is because of us, the service providers, the activists, and so on, who came before them and made it obvious that they had to come out with that report, and because of the wonderful women on the staff. That never was reported, even though it was well known by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, I think Dr. Davis is here, and so I'm going to interrupt the questions, and why don't we welcome her? <laughs> She's already been introduced. Nice to meet you. Do you, you want to say something before we start? Or just welcome. Nice speech. Right. Immediate gratification here. You can wait a few minutes if you want. This is the... This is the part of the panel that we didn't know quite how to organize. So um, it's up to you. We can go on with questions, or if you'd like to make a statement about some of the things we talked about. Uh, what have we talked about? <laughs> well, okay. We you and I spoke about okay. uh, Good evening. Just as a short introduction, I should probably state from um, which part of the uh, community I come from. Uh, so the first thing I usually state is that I'm a human being. I'm an American. I. Um, went to American schools, and I graduated. I've lived in America all my life. I've watched NBC, ABC, CBS, <laughs> read the Times all my life. I've gone to an American college. I've gone to American schools of training. And the reason I preface that is because as soon as they say, oh, well, there's a woman coming in. She's a black you know, minority physician, uh, and she works in a ghetto. It's like, uh oh, the other world. I hate to break it to you, but that's part of America, too, even though um, there are very few represented in part. And that, that, I think, is indicative of just the way our country is and how we structure it, and how people in all of the communities that make up this country uh, very rarely um, have ways to bridge those gaps. And yet I doubt that there are a few people in this room um, that I will not see when I go to a meeting in Bed-Stuy, which is actually very similarly set up, but it's all set up from uh, a different perspective in terms of who are the communities that know each other and who do you call that will address these same issues. And the reason that I am late is because I um, had set up a session for six young women, all of whom uh, their dreams were, as I remember correctly, to be an accountant, a pharmacist, a pediatrician. Um, one wanted to be a computer processor. The other one wanted to be, um, she wanted to have her own computer firm. And, uh, the last one wanted to do something of the sort. But I say this because I think so often it's forgot that all of us are very human and we have dreams. And that when you speak of young people that are afflicted with uh, a chronic progressive disease that um, is, is basically perceived as, as <clears throat> and, that, and that is in its end stage is fatal, uh, thereby decreasing the number of young people and the number of contributions you have in this country what people so often forget are the gifts that each person and each individual gives to society. Now, that's a very generalized statement, and what, that's nice, and I'm glad she said that, and what does she mean? I mean that if you live in a racist, homophobic society, and <clears throat> even if you're black, you tend to be racist, too. And even if you're gay, you tend to be homophobic, too, because that's what you've been taught from birth. So that even, for example, black writers or gay writers or any writers that we wish to pull out of a group that are within structures and they have to write for those structures, 
no matter how much those individuals often press, and I know because I'm the one, one of the people that they come to interview, they end up writing a nice, racist, homophobic interview. And I think that's very important to put across, irregardless of their efforts. So that the reason I came tonight is hopefully to deal with how communities can use their power to change structures. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Once again, rather than raise your hands, I just ask people to sort of, uh, you know, work it out among yourselves how to <laughs> go up to the microphone. I don't want to call on people. Uh, Mr. Rotleb, what I loved about the Native in 81 and 82 and 83 is that there was a wide diversity of opinions expressed within the newspaper, especially in its letters to the editor's section, which was wide and wonderful. And Dr. Dan William would write an article, and he'd be lambasted for the next two or three weeks and supported. Larry would write an article, and the letters to the editor would appear. I loved the BAR for that reason, and increasingly I disliked the New York Native for its singular approach to this epidemic and its, what I consider, character assassination of people with whom you may disagree, but nevertheless are acting out of their passion. I, I, I really resent the personal diatribes that you've given toward Matilda Krim and an Andy Hum and others. I really, really would love the New York native to go back to being a true town meeting of the air in print with a wide variety of opinions expressed representative of our entire community. Why doesn't someone start that paper? I think they are. I I've mean, been hearing rumors. I, you know, I, uh, we do try to publish all the letters that we get. I mean, if you, pardon what? We've had letters. We don't get that many letters. Pardon me. Let me look. Let me let me tell you what this community will get out of the, if we're right about this. You people will be dancing, singing a different tune, right? I'm taking a very big risk, so I better be right. I've worked very hard on this story, and I, I believe it's going to turn out that Lowe's virus is the cause of AIDS, and that that virus is African swine fever virus. I stand by all our stories, and just stay tuned. It is not over yet, at all. We'll start one. What I mean, I mean, st why don't why doesn't someone? I no one no one. I wasn't hired by the New York Native. To, I mean, I'm, it's not like I was handed this by a, you know by the welfare state. Okay, now Chuck Ortlip, you're the editor of, of this of our community paper. We created the New York Native to be. I mean, I still think it's an interesting paper. I would like it to be a lot better. It's, you're gonna it's gonna be a lot better this summer, especially if we get a competitor. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> But we're, we're shorthanded. We don't get to do as much as we, you know. If, if I only have a few people and limited resources, and limited resources, I'm going for the gold. And the gold is the low story. 
Uh, I want to just for a minute focus on the nature of some of the stories. I have noticed from the beginning of the epidemic that most newspaper and magazine articles focus on prevention and education uh, of the uninfected population by and large. Treatment stories have been confined to, uh, as we've discussed, uh, what the government is pushing, putting out in terms of press releases. And it, it occurs to me that there is either an, a conscious or unconscious, spoken or unspoken policy on the part of a newspaper like the New York Times that they do not print medical information which has not already been published in a scientific journal, which in this particular case I find sort of astonishing because if thousands of people are on a substance which may or may not be approved by the FDA, that's news. And yet it's always a struggle to get a major newspaper to cover treatment and substances that are being used through buyers groups and other sources. And I'm just wondering if, in fact, there is a policy that says we will not write about this unless it is first in, you know, in a medical journal. Anybody want to answer that? I can, I can try and speak about a paper that I should mention. I don't write for the news side, so I, I'm just guessing. First, I'm sure there's no policy. But second, I think that it's a, it's a problem that, that editors try and deal with uh, every day. Uh, certainly, it's very hard to, to give medical advice, and it's very wrong for a paper to give medical, medical advice unless they're reasonably sure about it. Uh, the, the types of treatment that you mentioned, you know, by definition, no one is sure about. So it's very hard. I think it probably would be wrong for a newspaper to say, here is this new, new treatment that is being uh, tried, and everyone should, should try it too. I think probably the most you can uh, expect a newspaper to do is, is when it seems newsworthy to mention that many people are trying a certain drug. And for treatment news, one should probably look uh, elsewhere than in a national newspaper. And indeed, there are many excellent news, newsletters that do provide treatment news. I think I think that division of labor is, is roughly what you would expect. Certainly, there's, I'm sure there's no policy in the Times that one should not cover it. But the reason it gets little coverage is for the reasons I've mentioned. Mr. Wade, you're really much too nice a man. Um, there simply is no reason why articles cannot appear in the paper if they present something that is new. Um, it hasn't been impossible for us simply to get our story out. Why, why is there no AIDS reporter in Washington? Can you take a message back to, to, to Max that there should be a, a, an AIDS reporter in Washington? Do you have any idea how many stories are not being reported because that man is not on the floor or that woman is not on the floor of, of Congress, is not in touch with, with the various uh, divisions, is not exploring why Dr. Coop resigned? Uh, why Dr. Fauci is doing what he is. I mean, what you, uh, fusion in a bottle has been on the front page for weeks. Uh, the Tylenol scare, again, I report. For you to tell us that we should be grateful that your re reporting has been adequate, was your word, adequate. You are meant to be the best. Adequate. We are dying. Something transmissible is going on. We must never forget that. It is not just an, a, heart, a heart disease or, or some kind of 
uh, other ailment. We have something transmissible going around, and your paper won't report it. How do we get the message out? Well, let me okay, and in terms, I want to answer Vito's question about, about is there a policy? I've spoken to many people at the Times, and they say, of course there's no policy, but of course there is. There is that unwritten law that you do not cross certain boundaries of, quote, taste, unquote. It's the old things where, the, where you never reported Jewish things back in the old days. It's the same thing. M mommy and Daddy up there on the top, uh, uh, whatever her name is, Zipaginaya and, and, uh, and, and uh, Salzberger or whatever, they don't like certain things in the paper. You do not displease Daddy. And when you do, you get it between the eyes. I'll give you a case in point. A man writes a biography of Cary Grant. Cary Grant is gay. We know Cary Grant is gay. This man interviewed 348 people. And because your book review and your book, your critic didn't like that notion, she dumped all over this, this, this statement that he had researched to a fare thee well and had evidence to it and cast suspersions on his research. We can't get our message out. We can't claim our own heroes or our enemies, as is the case with Terry Dolan, who was head of NICPAC, who did terrible things against us. And a book came out by, by a man in Washington, Terry uh, Young, about, about God's bullies, and said that, that, that Terry Dolan was gay. And no less than William Sapphire writes a whole column about what a nasty man Terry Young is, Terry Dean Young is, for writing this book and for saying something so heinous that Terry Dolan was gay. And when we went to the Times and we begged for us, because we knew Terry Dolan was gay, to l let us respond, we are not permitted to respond. You have a stranglehold on everything. And Very for you to tell us that we should be grateful that there is no quarantine in Cuba, you didn't get the mandatory testing thing through. We did. The gay community did. Thank you. Every gay organization, every political person, Tom Stoddard and Tim Sweeney and ACT UP and Gay Men's Health Crisis and Ann Fetner and everybody did unbelievable work to educate this country. How dare you say the press did it? Peg. Okay. Everybody want, who, uh, Peg will be next and then Iris and then anyone else. Okay. I'll try to be brief. Um, although I think maybe this is in the Times defense, I think that the Times was one of the first mainstream media to talk about AL-721 and it practically gave you the recipe, AL-721, practically gave you the recipe to mix it in your bathtub at the time, which that treatment has been pretty much discounted by a lot of uh, AIDS clinicians. I wanted to say this at the end of my question. The best example I can think of, if you want to address an example, is the example of aerosol pentamidine, which was saving uh, people from getting pneumonia for two years before it officially was called legitimate in the national press. And Michael Callan called Ryan White, you know, that kid who was kept out of school, and about a year ago, just to find out how the kid was. And his mother said, well, he's in the hospital, he has pneumonia. And Michael said, isn't he on aerosol pentamidine? And his mother said, no, our doctor didn't know about that. And I thought if the most famous kid in the United States could get PCP because he didn't know about aerosol pentamidine, where were the newspapers? Just to say this treatment existed, now, of course, it's been printed because now it's sanctioned. But it, the, the, one of the quandaries that exist, at least, is that 
um, for example, I get all the science mail in the New York office at UPI, and we get a lot of stuff from, you know, like small pharmaceutical type companies that, you know, like have the next cure for AIDS. And so certainly something like aerosol pentamidine or AL-720 is reportable because a lot of people are doing it, and you can report on that phenomena and why and what the rationale is behind it and so forth. But then there's also an issue of, like, how many of these drugs that are untested can you suggest to people to use, um, you know, responsibly? I mean, it's, it's in some ways what you need to report on are the places where they can get more information and do more research themselves, but to talk about drugs that are untested... You know, that's a huge responsibility. What the hell they put the Chinese tooth number out there for? And there's no damn way for anybody to get it. Do you know how many people have called me for the last two days asking for a Chinese cucumber? <laughs> Not a single damn paper in New York said these are limited trials. There are majors. They did say there are major side effects and that they're on the West Coast. The trials are on the West Coast. The trials aren't in New York. They made it front page newspaper. But they haven't discussed the context of what is the reality for all people who have HIV disease, whether they come of the gay community, the black community, the Hispanic community, or whatever, in terms of saying the difficulty and the accessing of treatment, they haven't talked about the percentages of people, because I have a whole complement of people that come from the village because they can't afford the treatments in Manhattan. Not a single newspaper in New York City has effectively described the ethical issue of a company getting rich Burroughs' welcome needs to be discussed in terms of its class action suit against it. How the hell do they have the nerve to get rich? We have don't talk. Wait a minute. I'm not Sorry. finished. I'll let you talk. <laughs> what about the stranglehold of American researchers not respecting any European research? Why hasn't Emuthiol had more open trials across the board? Why haven't we been able to get more community research initiatives started? A lot of stuff has come out of the community, not just the gay community. And now that the press has decided that the gay community is a reportable community, and you know they're respectable, there are people that fight for their lives, I guess the rest of us are just sitting out there waiting for the virus to attack us. I mean, you have to look at the way the media portrays people in terms of stereotypes. In addition, of course, they have a difficult task. You have a, dis you have a difficult task. You know, what am I supposed to do, not buy the newspaper? I don't, I, I, there's more context than is often reported. People don't get a sense that doctors and physicians and nurses and activists all <laughs> over the country are working toward developing treatments, that there are alternatives, that there are three other letters in the alphabet besides AZT. <laughs> there, it's, that context has not come from the newspapers in the city that is the epicenter of the world. Does anyone else, before any, uh, does anyone else want to answer this question? Or should we go on with this question, or should we go on to the next? Well, uh, Vito's question. Or should we going to move on to something else? All right, go ahead. First, if I may, I'd like to make a comment or observation about my impressions about what the panelists have said. We have here on the right three proponents in terms of Dr. Davis and Mr. Kramer and Mr. Ortlet. And I would characterize the other half of the table as two apologists in Ms. Fetner and Mr. Wade. <clears throat> I don't agree with you, Ms. Fetner, that <clears throat> on the whole you or the press has waged a heroic struggle against insurmountable odds from the beginning and that somehow things are getting better in the press. I certainly cannot agree with Mr. Wade 
ever with the use of the word acceptable when we're dealing with an issue of life and death. That to me, sir, is unconscionable. Ms. Byron, from your statements, I don't know where you stand from your opening comments, and I'm not familiar with your work, but I found what you had to say confusing. What I'd like to ask, the questions I'd like to pose, is how is it that the press from the very outset allowed this disease, and it is a disease, to be referred to as the gay disease? Oh, thank you. How come no one, no one ever fought against that sobriquet? Why, may I finish? Sure. Why did it take us four years to compare AIDS with the African experience when AIDS, in terms of experientially, was first known in Africa? And I'm not speaking of you specifically, Ms. Fechner, but it was referred to in much of the press as the gay disease, the mainline press. How is it that there has been no comparison in the press in this country with the European press? For example, there have been major articles in the English press, the London Observer, about the issue of vaccines as perhaps being a mode of transmission of whatever AIDS is caused by. I'll try to wrap up because of the, mm-hmm. I'm trying to stick to the time How limit. come those issues are not reported? Where are the investigative journalists? Do they still exist? That, I think, is an important issue. Well, this investigative journalist uh, found that both of the the outlets that initially appeared to be interested in AIDS reporting were not so interested in AIDS reporting. That's where this one is. Chuck mm-hmm. uh, fired me, and I left The Voice because they weren't up for doing anything. As far as your question about AIDS uh, in Africa, I was writing about that, I expect, before anybody uh, even thought about it or was willing to accept it, because I had only come back from living in Africa in 1980 when Kaposi Sarcoma first surfaced. That was <coughs> what got me interested in AIDS. I don't think any of us have done a grand job, but I do think that given the priorities in the world, that when I looked at it last night thinking about this, that I was surprised that as much as is written about it as has been written about it. Because on a scale of how many children dying daily of, uh, of diarrhea in Africa, how many dying in the Sudan, how many dying all over the world, people. I mean, it's, you know, it is our flea, and it looks like a gazelle, but it is another flea. May I suggest that when it comes to life and death, there are never any fleas, however okay. small the numbers may be. Okay. Maybe you people need a little bit more fire in your bellies. If I hadn't been doing this for eight years, I'd probably have more energy left for it. I admit my energy is very, very low. (laughs) Well, I'm here to speak about the people that usually not, you know, have a voice, you know. I'm talking about people, Hispanic people, and I'm talking about Hispanic people and black people and people that can't read, which is at least four, at least two million people that can't read, married to somebody that could read. And I, I'm really concerned about, you say that you publicize it, but working in a program where they have non-readers and so-called poor people that I, I see the media always portraying them as the carriers, as same as the gay people. And how could you educate them 
about the disease, listening to people tell me and talk to me about, well, if I have the disease, what can I do about it? I can't afford anything. I, all I have to do is sit there and die. And I just want to know, how would you go about educating those people? Would anyone like to answer that? I didn't, well, uh, someone's patting my back, so I presume I've been nominated. The only newspaper that I really know, although I know newspaper reporters on all the major newspapers, I guess, at this point, uh, that has started to deal with some of those issues is Newsday. And it has had a continuing series on the fact that the city is doing something to offer treatment uh, to the vast numbers of HIV-infected people in the communities of color. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if there has been a good enough description to um, help communities um, that too often we perceive, pardon me, too often we perceive AIDS as just the last plague. It's not the plague. It is the plague in some parts of American society. It is the last plague. It may be the plague after the crack plague, after the baby's plague, after the lack of education plague, after the lack of reading plague, after the lack of jobs plague. So because that is not an experience um, that I think um, many people are aware of in this country, when they do report it, they certainly report it in ways where they go to a shooting gallery. Well, I have a clinic with 1,200 people. 80% of the people there are due to intravenous drug use. And out of that population, less than 20 people are anyone who could relate to that article, okay? But all the articles that have dealt with people of color have over 90% been like, you know, the shooting galleries and the person who lives underneath the subway, and those are very real issues, and those are very real people with HIV disease, but it doesn't give you an, a graphic or adequate representation of how many people are affected by the disease throughout the community. What needs to happen and what has not happened enough is that also in presses that are in, within the communities of color, they need to localize more. They tend to be extremely conservative, and there is not enough pressure put on them from within and without the community to change their attitudes. Although some have been extremely aggressive in, in reporting that it was not a gay man's disease, and the city sun is one I would name for that um, way back, you know, before it was obviously put out. Um, I think that you have to deal with the reality of America, and I don't think that any of the three people sitting on that side of the table, and I think she points out very, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting your last name. No, that lady is over there. Anne. Um, I think Anne has pointed out a very important thing. As I said, for example, long before the Department of Health put it into an investigative journal, so then the Times did report it, uh, she and I worked for a couple months on an article that was finally reported in Ms. where I said young women between the ages of 25 to 44 are dying of a high rate of pneumonia. How many of those corpses, how many of those dead women did they test for HIV to say why is a woman between the age of 25 to 44 dying of pneumonia? Okay. In terms of the community of color, 
it, we can't just look at it as that. We have to stop looking at it as this community, that community, whatever. I mean, we all have to start saying, look, we're community. And if you think that your eastern seaboard can fall off of the nation and the rest of you are going to get along just fine, we hate to break it to you. If Masters and Johnson didn't get it through to you, let us get it through to you. We're all in trouble. We are either one ship or we can all sink on separate boards. All right, one, one more quick question. Why do they, as I sit here, uh, everybody separates the issue as gay, straight, and, you know, and I, I, I wondered, you know, like, why do, even as you speak and you read about it, it's always separated. Why they can't deal with it as one big issue? AIDS, you know. Because it's not a disease. It's a disease. It's an affected group of people that have this disease. You understand? Until HIV is an acceptable medical phenomenon and the people who are sick and ill with the disease are thought of as human beings, and since they have been unfortunate enough to fall into the class of people that none of the major media in this country have ever accepted as human beings, we have reached a critical junction in terms of our history where we now have to say, turn around and say, my gay brother or that person across the street who I worked with for 30 years, that I never went to their house, but I worked with them or whatever, is a human being, even though they're black, Hispanic, gay, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. We have to break through some real difficult areas of American society. And our media has never been forerunning. It has never been out there. And it certainly has not done a whole lot to pick up issues before the country as a whole has moved toward them. So you're saying some more people, in other words, you need more people to die. No, I'm Not saying that we need more people to organize. It's all going to stay the same for you people until you get angry and do something. And, that, and that's, well, we've been, we have been fighting. The, unfortunately, the poor communities, the drug communities, the black and Hispanic communities are years behind. It's been very hard to outreach to all of you. Um, You have to understand that why no one is paying attention to this is because it's happening to people that they don't care about. And therefore, we got to care about ourselves. And until bodies, and they're not going to do anything about it until either we get angry enough, you're right, until we get angry enough, or until there are so fucking many bodies piled up in the doorways that they're going to have to do something about it. And that's slowly beginning to happen. But what a great cost. But, but, you know, this, let me answer a little piece of your question, because I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm a health educator, and that's what I was doing in Africa. It has really no impact in Spanish Harlem. I've been up there working on the story. I've been talking to a lot of people. It doesn't have any impact up there. If you don't get out on the streets and do it, you do nothing. You do nothing. And who's going to give the money to get out on the streets and make a scene? I don't know. I don't see it. Take your kids and sit by the um, I was under the impression that the title of the talk was AIDS in the Media, but it appeared, it appeared so far to be AIDS in the Print Press. Uh, yeah, that was, the title was actually AIDS in the Press. Real, oh, yeah. well, I apologize. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I'd like to hear what people think about television coverage because as someone, I think it was Peg Byron pointed out, over half of the Americans get uh, their impressions and facts about AIDS uh, from television. In, in an era of 12-second soundbite news, how has the news coverage of AIDS been on television historically? 
and what do people think about non-news portrayals of AIDS, which largely appear to be confined to small, lovable white babies? Um, I just want to take this opportunity to praise some uh, a news editor on um, CNN, Dan Rutz, who I think is is doing an amazing job. He's got an open mind about AIDS and its various treatments. I mean, he's run spots on the fact that you can treat AIDS patients with heavy doses of penicillin, and a lot of them get better. And I don't think you've seen that on the other television networks. They're 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 more cons generally more conservative. They don't dare. Um, say anything that hasn't been okayed by the NIH or the CDC. But I just want to say that about Dan Rutz if someone wants to comment on TV. Nope. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think the, these, the people on this panel are more expert on the press. No, I mean, I think we could talk about TV, but we say the same thing. It's been very badly done, and this issue is very complicated, and it's hard to, to tell a whole story in three and a half seconds about the whole background and scandal about almost every issue that, that you want. Um, there's certain networks that have been better than others. Certain people got on board earlier. ABC, I think, was marginally better than the other two networks. George Strait did the first stories that I remember. Um, I think the the medical, Susan Spencer uh, and uh, Bazell have, have, have been pretty good on it. Um, it's, it's a, the, the, the PBS has been terrible. Um, uh, the AIDS Quarterly is uh, something new from WGBH in Boston, which is their heart's in the right place, but by the time the stuff gets out there, it's usually very dated. Um, again, if you think of the major stories that have transpired that the media is interested in, and you see how they are repeated night after night after night after night. I mean, I think that, that Ted Koppel single-handedly is going to get us into war with Panama, because he just keeps running that story on Nightline every night about what, what is going down there, and it may well be worth it. But that'll show you what they can do if they're interested in it. And again, it comes down to if they're interested in it. And they are not interested in this. They make excuses for being adequate. Well, with this lady's indulgence, I'm going to follow up on that then. Um, I, someone mentioned the uh, fall off in AIDS coverage that was identified by the CDC. I think probably a lot of us have seen that. Um, so the question is for the future. We've talked a lot about the past. What do the panel see as the future of AIDS coverage to the degree that it can be projected? And if such a fall off is real, what can people affected by AIDS do to keep it in the public eye. Practical advice is always appreciated. I want to, I think you're going to see a paradigm change in AIDS and pretty soon the term AIDS will change to something like chronic immune dysfunction and the media will start to cover the even larger epidemic we have in this country of chronic fatigue immune dysfunction which the Surgeon General's wife as far as I know has and her, which means that her immune system is not terribly different from an AIDS patient. She's, she's not as sick as an AIDS patient, but she's got something very close to AIDS. And for every AIDS patient, there are probably 20 or 30 people out there who are suffering from that disease. And I think that's partly what, what's happening in the press right now. A lot of people in the press know that chronic fatigue is, about, is the story that's going to explode over the next five years. I mean, there was just a huge conference out in San Francisco of doctors and nurses, many of them who have the disease have immune dysfunction disease, trying to figure out what virus is causing that. And I think that 
the CDC is starting to realize that there's a viral connection between AIDS and chronic fatigue, and that's, that's where the press is, gonna, is, is going, and, and, and you can say goodbye to the, the way the epidemic has been covered, I, I think. Um, I just want to point out, we're running pretty short on time now. We have about 10 minutes left, so I'll I think tell you what I think is going to happen. They're going to hate us even more, and there's going to be even less, all of us, in the afflicted communities. I'm answering you. And Nick Wade is, hates me more tonight and hates gay people more tonight and hates, hates AIDS more tonight because we have shamed them and we have criticized them. And Max Frankel warned me of this in a letter, that the more we criticize the Times for what they're doing, the worse we're going to be treated. And that is going to happen across the country and around the world. I just want to say, Chuck may not like to hear this, I think if the, if the AIDS name gets changed at all, it's going to be HIV disease. Probably. It could be HHV6 disease, probably, or HBLV disease. That's where the discussion is at this point. Um, uh, but the other thing I want to say is, in terms of the future of AIDS coverage, is um, it, the reason I, it faded in 1988, which is what I said before, is that what was the only thing that was new, it's very hard to report the same thing over and over. You just don't get to do that. It's not news anymore. But the shift was it was into much more into the black and Hispanic and drug-using communities. And the mainstream media and the people they sell to are not interested in those communities or the editors don't perceive them as interested. And um, I think that AIDS is going to get shoveled into the urban health morass that uh, is referred to on occasion and hands are wrung about, but um, uh, I think it's going to be pushed into the background until, you know, while reporters wait for scientists to come up with some kind of medical breakthrough that we can report on. But I think that the, and this is, you know, not just a reflection of the bias in the press. I think it's a reflection of the, you know, the interest by, you know, the, the people who pay the way for the press. And um, so I, I think that that's a, a very bleak outlook in terms of um, what it means for the people who are going to suffer from it. If I could respond very briefly to the last <clears throat> speaker, I, I would just urge to, to keep the pressure on and, and not be discouraged uh, when, when you don't uh, get, get coverage. Like my friend Chuck Ortlip, just keep trying, and uh, and you'll get somebody. There has been a drop off in coverage, um, but it's but it's for inevitable reasons. Uh, it doesn't mean the press is deaf to very important uh, groups such as we have working in AIDS. I'd like to respond very briefly to what Larry Kramer said, whom I do not and will never hate. I, I did not mean to say that the Times' coverage has been adequate. I want to say. It's been at least adequate, and I do believe it's a, it's a great deal better than adequate. Since he left, and I could do this. Um, <clears throat> I really want to get back to the issues of structure. If you don't really deal with structure, you know, um, I'm going to be very honest. Often when people come from my community, it's like they say, well, gay men understand what it's like to be a real minority now. That's a very crude homophobic statement, okay? But what they're really saying is now you really understand the true level of discrimination, you really understand what is to be written off as an entire group. Because we see, we don't really care if you live or die. And that's how ethnic minorities have felt for decades, okay? And what you're really coming to cope with is how do you change a society that says you're not part of me and you're not important enough to write about or to think about or to help you as you die or live. And I think that, again, we have to look at how do communities e effectually change major structures. Do we need to talk about every person infected with HIV at least being mobilized not to buy the Times 
for a day in New York City. I mean, that sounds like a really silly idea maybe, but we've mobilized people not to buy chili and grapes, for God's sakes. You know, you should be able to mobilize people where it hurts, economics. Green always works. That's a model that Chuck Ortlib has labeled the three-grape mode of uh, attacking social problems, which I think is a good one. Mr. Wade, I have two questions for you. Um, the first is, what, what do you think about the New York Times running an article in Science Times, a half-page article in Science Times, that begins with the statement, you know, what if the AIDS virus mutated and became casually transmissible by cough or sneeze? I mean, what does that mean? And secondly, why did no reporter from any major paper that I read ask why Dr. Coop resigned? And, and not being given an answer to that question, why did they say why is no answer being given, no reason, no excuse for Dr. Coop's resignation? Um, to, uh, to the first question, I guess you're referring to Larry Altman's story in the yes, Science right, yes, uh, right. Times. Um, that it just seemed, it seemed to me an excellent uh, uh, story, just discussing the possibility of a totally new disease, a, a theme that he explored well before AIDS was even heard of. I mean, he's just interested in new diseases and new epidemics. And I read that story, just been following, uh, you know, following up on old interest of his. As to, as to Coop's resignation, I just have Well, I mean, well, wait a minute. Are you saying this was creative writing? <laughs> No, I mean seriously. I mean seriously. If the New York native, which I work for, published something that said AIDS might change and become casually transmissible, almost every person in this room would, would come down and want to kill us. Well, I'm, the only quote I remember from the story was from someone specifically denying uh, that it would, from Howard Temin. The quote was from Howard Temin saying that that is ridiculous and it right. could, could never happen. Right, so three paragraphs the, from the end of the story. So, so even if the story said what you said it did, and I don't remember it, it was certainly balanced by a quote from Temin saying it was not possible. So I thought Larry wrote an excellent story. And as to Coop, I just, haven't, an excellent heard, story. I just haven't heard um, any, any you know, particular explanation of, of why but Why has no that. journalist asked why no explanation is given of a resignation three months before his retirement? I have. Oh, good. <clears throat> He's going into television. No, I... Yeah, I, no, yeah. I'm not kidding. No, but what you I don't... What I kid you about Dr. Coop? Miss Fetner, you don't believe that, do you? I'm absolutely. I talked to... So much for investigative I talked to journalism. them three days ago. I have a quote specifically. I knew we were going to be here tonight. I have a quote for you from Dr. Coop. Quote, no low, close quote. He's retiring to go into television. Why, why, why can he wait three months and serve out his term and retire when he was planning to I retire? don't think he needs it. Well, neither, we, to, we don't need it either, but we got it. He doesn't it. seem to be under any... Well, I think that I, we do have to support ourselves. I think Dr. Coop is probably, after his illustrious career, probably well able to handle it. He's... Um, he doesn't seem to be under any particular strain. He's looking forward to television. A series, health. What, Just is, to, what does the no low mean? No low. Means that he doesn't Chuck sa has said that Dr. Coop is a supporter of Lowe's and that the reason Lowe's 
molecular biology investigation of a virus-like particle did not get in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine was because, I don't know, uh, Who took it there? Byzantine. Who took it there, though? Honey, you don't put molecular biology in the New England Journal. They publish nothing but clinical stuff. That'd Coop, be like them publishing my it. memoir. Coop got involved. And didn't you know that Coop got involved with Lowe and took the paper there? It's a fact, then. What's your problem? I'm just giving you his quote. said, no Lowe. Does that mean he, he didn't That's do it? That's just a smart-ass remark, Ann. He took the paper to the New England Journal. Chuck, come on. He wouldn't take that paper to the New England Journal. They don't ever publish stuff like that. They've never published anything like that in their lives. Well, then why did he take it? He took it to the New England he Journal of Medicine. It. He, it's not just the native that's reported that. The Medical Tribune's um, also reported the same thing. Well, maybe he had it in his pocket when he went, but Dr. Coop has certainly read enough New England journals to know they don't do basic research molecular oh, that's biology. Silly, that's a silly response. That's, just uh, that's a silly response? That's a frivolous response. From a man who talks pigs, porpoises, dolphins, and mosquitoes, you telling me I'm frivolous? And Uh, can I just say something before we get too carried and away? With wait this, a minute, wait a minute, just, David. This is wait. very quick. I just want to say that we do need to wrap up in about the next 15 or 20 minutes, so I'm not going to take any more questions after these people. And let's keep that in mind, because we can't stay here all night. Um, because, there are, because this is in our space, and the church wants us out at a certain time. I had a question, but I yield to Mr. Ortlab to finish his response. Do you want to go on with what you're saying? No, I'll go. That's all right. Does he believe in the virus, Ann? Ann? Ann does, Larry wants to does know he if he believes believe in the virus or the efficacy of the virus? He said no low. That's all he said about it. Okay. All right. I'm, uh, jo I'm John Lauritsen. I write for the Native, and I have a couple of comments. Uh, there is one newspaper in New York City that has covered AZT and the scandals involving Boris Welcome, and that's the native, and I wrote the articles. Uh, some of it's been highly newsworthy. Originally, there were only a few of us who dared to break it, but now even the London Times recently has followed the lead that the, the uh, native had a year and a half ago. Uh, among the newsworthy things are According to the documents which uh, the FDA was forced to release under the Freedom of Information Act, the phase two trials on which approval of the drug were based were invalid and indeed fraudulent. Even the London Times agreed with me there. So here is something highly newsworthy which not only the New York Times but also all of the media, right, left, and center, hippy-dippy, in between, you name it, all ignored that. Not only the Times, gay community news also. This was highly newsworthy. Secondly, the HIV debate. This is newsworthy. I have written extremely conservative articles scientifically, not radical. I brought Duisburg into the public arena, and so far, Duisburg has won the debate by default. Uh, the New York Times has had exactly one article on Duisburg. It was a very poor article by Philip Boffey, and that was a long time ago. Surely it was newsworthy that last summer in Science Magazine there was a debate between Duisburg and Gallo and Company in which Duisburg definitely won. The other side, you know, pathetically could not put up a case. Surely it was newsworthy, Duisburg's article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. 
Uh, it's a, the most trivial articles in the proceedings are often made into front page stories. So this was clear suppression. Basically, I'm saying in the United States, we do have a controlled media, uh, very much so. It's, it's subtle, but I would compare it to the, the, the concept the Nazis had since they were mentioned early. They had what they called Gleichschaltung. Well, the press in this country is Gleichgeschaltet. It is controlled. It is thoroughly coordinated according to the interest of the HIV industry, the HIV mob. I want to say just a couple more things. Okay, try to wrap up because you're already 30 seconds over the 90 seconds. Okay, it okay. is outrageous that a highly toxic drug like ACT, approved on the basis of fraudulent research, with demonstrated collusion between Sam Broder and FDA officials, I mean, I'm sorry, and Burroughs Welcome, uh, that nothing has appeared in the press. It is terrible. Now, I don't claim that I'm right on everything. I think I am. And certainly, when it, <laughs> when it comes to analyzing trials, this is my field. I have 20 years of professional experience, as well as a solid academic background. So when I discuss survey research, I'm on solid ground. But if anyone disagrees with anything I've written, it's now been a year and a half, why don't you write to the New York native and specifically say why you think that I am wrong? Nobody has. Uh, I'm, as far as I can tell, I have also won this debate by okay, default. Are we really going to have to ask you to wrap up because okay. you're going way over time now. Okay, okay, I will wrap up. It's not been very much fun. I've lived for two years in voluntary poverty telling the truth about AZT. And there's been damn little support from any of the press, right, left, center, gay, straight, or in between. And, you know, I, I no, would like no to see something done. Where is this so-called press freedom we're supposed to have in this country? I don't see it. Uh, I see that the native is one bright light of press freedom in a pretty black situation in this country. Responsive? <laughs> Uh, Mr. Wade, I want you to look at this young man who's just in front of the microphone. His name is Peter Staley, and single-handedly he arranged a takeover of the Burroughs Welcome Company in Raleigh, North Carolina. He boarded himself up uh, along with several other members, forcing Burroughs Welcome to meet with him, to break down the walls to get him. This story received national media attention just about everywhere except the New York Times. Peter Staley is a New York citizen. He is an enormously courageous man. It is a human interest story beyond compare where an HIV positive person literally to get attention to this heinous company and its deeds shut himself along with several other of ACT UP members into their own company. Why did the New York Times not report it? <clears throat> Is there any other response to the to John Lauritsen's comments before we go on to, or to what Larry just said before we go on to Peter, uh, from the panel? <laughs> no. Okay, Peter. Yeah, um, I'm obviously with ACT UP. Um, uh, <laughs> I'd really I'll ignore the Burroughs Welcome thing. I'd like to move on to uh, my personal feelings uh, about the natives' coverage of AIDS and HIV. Um, I think uh, John Lawrenson's comments, uh, he's asking why people aren't listening to him, um, why people aren't considering it, 
considering his arguments viable from a personal perspective, it's because I've been on that drug uh, for seven months and have had a progressive rise in T4 cells. The person to my right is going through the same situation. I have a feeling that quite a few people in this room are going through the same situation, and thousands in this country are going through the same situation. It's hard to ignore. The feelings I want uh, expressed that haven't been expressed about the native, the only comments I've been hearing are that it's not a community <laughs> Uh, it's not presenting a wide dispersion of views. It's not a community paper anymore. You've admitted it's not a community paper in that sense. Uh, I, I'm upset at the native. Uh, it's because what we have is an argument that's very similar to the argument that happens between the fundamentalists and um, the evolutionists, uh, where unfortunately it's called the evolutionist theory. Um, I would not want the New York Times to re be reporting every week on the debate between the evolutionists and the fundamentalists, because the evolutionist theory is not theory, it is fact. Um, and so is HIV. I think it's time that we, we, we recognize that. We also have to realize that it's fact that AZT uh, is helping some people. And the fact that your paper is is adding to the massive confusion that already exists for, the, for those of us who are trying to decide how to treat ourselves, when to start taking drugs. It, it, it's so mind-boggling making these decisions. When you throw in this crap of a theory that, uh, you know, that, that HIV has nothing to do with it and that AZT is poison, and friends of mine like Griffin Gold by your line or are confused enough about it that he died on the 1981 time scale instead of buying himself maybe the six or nine months that AZT could have bought him, you're killing people and that's the anger I want to express. You're irresponsible and a lot of us are fed up and that's why we're not buying your paper anymore and I can't wait for a new we paper. Think we Thank think you. We <laughs> Okay, en en enough applause. The point's been made. Let's let Chuck respond. I really, I mean, I really, it must be horrible to be on a drug, a chemical therapy, that the native says is poison. It, I, I mean, I, it's, but my conscience tells me that I have to publish people like John Lauritsen, who I, who I think has done, an I think John deserves 10 Pulitzer Prizes for his articles on AZT. I mean, I'm really sorry. I feel that, I feel that John is going to save lives. I think that, you know, the next step the government wants, for those of you who aren't on AZT but are HIV positive, is going to be they want everyone on AZT. They even want people who aren't HIV positive. Bill Hazeltine at Harvard wants people who are just in a risk group on chemo prophylaxis AZT. So you should all get ready to start taking AZT. I have a feeling a lot of you, you know, will, wouldn't do that at gunpoint, or will do it only at gunpoint. Um, I'm sorry, the native, we, let there be a thousand papers in New York. Let, you know, let all kinds of ideas bloom. There's no, there's no law that you can't start a newspaper. Why, why don't people start newspapers with your ideas? You know, we're, this is, we, I want a free press, we have these ideas, we're going to publish them. If you want, we'll, if, write a letter to the native, we'll publish it. 
There aren't, I don't think there, John Hammond will have to confirm this, I don't think there are any censored letters sitting around the native. You know, we'd like more letters. So attack the native, we'll publish it. Um, well, we don't have, there aren't, you, know, you people aren't even writing them, so write them. No. We just we we didn't have that much mail. And we didn't have, have that much space. I'll make a commitment. I'll make a commitment to you. I will publish two pages, full pages of letters from now on, starting a week from Monday, and. Hold me to it. And I mean, I may have to write them myself if we don't get any. I mean, yeah, we're. Yeah. <clears throat> well, starting, you know, hold me to this, you know. Are there any other responses? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry that Peter Staley's sit in the Bar's Welcome did not get uh, covered. It sounds like maybe it, it should have done. I'd like to say I sh share your dislike of Bar's Welcome surprises. We've done at least one editorial trying to shame them into reducing their price and, and there was a great editorial. Oh well thank you and we'll do more. Okay. Any other responses? Well, okay, go because ahead. This is a uh, pen panel. I want to get back to the literary rather than the political and this is directed to uh, Larry Kramer. You have been using AIDS as a metaphor and the metaphor is the Jewish Holocaust. I think there's a terrific, forceful metaphor to use. What do you see as the uh, comments or feedback that you might have received or you will receive on this AIDS as metaphor? From the Jewish community? Well, address it the way you wish. Well, actually, uh, my, <laughs> my editor, Michael Denanian, was concerned that we would get a lot of flack from the Jewish community calling the book reports from the Holocaust. <coughs> it's been just the reverse. I got a, uh, first of all, it hasn't created a flack, so I shouldn't say it's the reverse. It's been, but I did get a call from a rabbi, the chief rabbi of Chicago's big reformed congregation, Temple Emanuel, saying, uh, being very supportive, he's reviewing the book in the Christian Times uh, or something, and he said, he, he, I want you to know that I'm there for you and that you mustn't feel that the Jews have abandoned gay people, or that all Jews have a, abandoned gay people. That's been my only anecdote to tell. Well, you're a great writer. <laughs> Thank you. <Right. laughs> tell that to the New York Times Book Review. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting that we came here tonight to talk about AIDS in the press, and 90% of the discussion is AIDS not in the press. And we've sat here and stood here and covered ground that we've covered a thousand times and yet we keep hitting this wall that we can't get past. I, I believe we have a marketing problem here. We know it drives the press in this nation. It's the same thing that drives every other enterprise in this nation. It's money, it's dollars, it's what sells. Why can't we get through that barrier? What are we missing? I, is there no one in the press that has the insight to see that what's happening in the AIDS crisis is happening elsewhere in the system? that the, the problems in the healthcare system, the problems in the drug research and approval system are affecting other populations. And here we have this wonderful situation. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare, but 
in a sense, it's also wonderful because it's calling attention to these problems. The drug approval process, if it isn't working for AIDS patients and for HIV patients, it's not working for cancer patients. It's not working for the rest of the public in many, many ways. Those same problems that are being brought to light here are, are true in other parts of the system, yet we can't get past this barrier to see that. Uh, we all know why. We all know that, that it's easily dismissed as long as we can dismiss it to a small, small part of the population. How do we get past that? Where, where does the challenge come from in the major media to get past that barrier, to recognize that these problems are affecting everyone in the country and not, not just specifically AIDS-related? But doesn't it all run on, as you say, it all runs on money? And in and these cases, sorry, it all runs on money, and the money that is supplied to bolster up all of these outlets are advertisers. And the advertisers are the most cautious people in the world, I suppose, and getting more cautious. I'd, your point is well taken. I'd, I don't know how you do it unless you begin putting serious pressure on advertisers. You answer the question yourself, basically. And it's very, I don't, I don't know that we will. You ever read anything by a man I've just discovered, and I'm amazed at my ignorance, a man called Noam Chomsky. Oh. He's a professor at MIT, and he's an incredible dissident, and um, he basically will explain to you why the ruling class is the ruling class and everybody else isn't. Um, and you've partly gone into it yourself. But uh, basically, it's to their advantage to keep us where we are and everything is, in fact, geared to doing just that. And until we get the strength to arrive where they are, they're going to be there. Uh, of course, it. Frederick Douglass said it, too. So remember that what Larry is saying has been said out of the context and the history of this nation since it started. You know, one man, one vote has been around for only 20 years in our lifetime, okay? So if you would take off your own blinders, and then you can recognize where to put your energies, because what you're pointing out, the healthcare crisis in New York City, the reason it's a gay man's disease is because the CDC decided the doctors that were black did not know what they were talking about, especially if they took care of black people who were gay and went to Harlem Hospital. They were reported on about TB in 1981. It became a CDC criteria when so if you see the problem in the press, the same problem exists across somewhere else. And it doesn't have to be black, it can be a woman. It can be, it, it can, yeah, I mean, you can just keep making the categories. What it comes down to is power and money. So unless we are about, as, as all of us are, which I presume is like regular working everyday people, you know, deciding how to change power and money and organize, then this has been a nice exercise and I enjoyed the ride from Brooklyn. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to, we're sort of, I think we should wrap up now, so I'm just going to, before we close, I'm going to ask if anyone has any last comments they'd like to make, anyone on the panel who'd like to say something before we, uh, before we go downstairs to the gymnasium for uh, fruit Basketball. juice and potato chips. A reception. Not healthy. <laughs> yeah, not, not healthy, not healthy but food. also not alcoholic, so 
which will be happening as soon as this ends. I uh, would like you, and everyone is invited. Uh, but before we get to that, any last comments or, or uh, remarks? I want to repeat something I said earlier, which is um, <laughs> um, I think um, I've, I've been unnecessarily harsh on Mr. Wade when I'm actually after the paper. He has, as I said initially, been a very good friend of ours and has written good editorials and has been available to us, which most of the other reporters are not. And I didn't wish to in any way dump on him. It's just um, who he works for that I wish to dump on. Thank you. I'd like to ask a question. Yes. I'm going to be giving a talk in Bed-Stuy. I'd like to know what message you want me to carry back. It's an HIV conference for uh, a community in Bed-Stuy. What message do you want me to carry back? I'm sick of carrying the message to, to the gay community. They've heard me a number of times. I'm going to carry the message back. Somebody stand up and tell me what message you want me to carry back from the village. Act Up okay. meets every Monday at 7.30. Okay. So you've got a lot of, you got all that? <laughs> yeah, but let me ask you. Give me something real to work with. My people don't feel comfortable at the ACT I UP meetings. I ACT UP meets every Monday at 7.30. My people don't feel comfortable at the ACT UP meetings, the right. way they're presently structured. Why? 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 They don't. Why? I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, you want to answer that? The why? I think often because they're just coping with HIV disease, they're not comfortable with the type of anger they feel at the meetings. They're not sure of what your agenda is, and they don't really feel that that agenda extends to them as human beings, the ones I've sent there. I'm just telling you the real deal. I was just going to say, um, ACT UP, maybe rather than general meeting, ACT UP has a majority action committee. I'm more than aware of that. I'm saying to people in this room that we obviously need to coalesce on a number of issues. Yeah. And I'm asking, I've thought of a number of suggestions my own way. I'm trying to get them to understand. There's lots of things going on in the black and Hispanic community that probably many of you are not aware of. But there have got to be greater coalitions or we're going to keep repeating what the last speaker said. So what, to me, I, see, I always want to take home something, a, either a new organization, a new project, something to function, to move, to take action, and to make change. I have not seen any change made here tonight. Any other, are there any other answers to that? Yes? Good idea. That's Very good idea. idea. Okay. Then you can set your own agenda. There is something going on in Africa. There is something going on in uh, Africa House uh, that that I know a lot of the people in the Majority Action Committee of ACT UP are involved with, uh, and I don't know if it's the same meeting in Bed-Stuy that Iris was just talking about, but there is some kind of a forum, and I feel very ill-informed not to be able to tell you the date, but it's taking place at Africa House in Brooklyn, and I believe it is a kind of... Uh, out, uh, a kind of coalition building effort between community groups in Brooklyn and ACT UP in Manhattan. Um, and I'm sorry that I don't have more details, but you can certainly find out by calling the ACT UP number or, ask, or coming to the Majority Action Committee meeting, which is, uh, I believe, Thursdays at 8 o'clock at the Gay Community Center. Um, anything else? Any other last comments from anyone? I'd just like to say I learned a lot at the meeting uh, from all the comments, even those I disagreed with. Um, um, thank you for uh, inviting me to be here. Thank you for coming. <laughs>
Yes, Peg has something to say. The one thing I was going to say is this seems like the right forum to mention this in, which is it seems to me that the uh, um, louder suggestions that AIDS has become too much of a focus for the gay community really only seem to surface when AIDS shifted more heavily into black, Hispanic, and drug-using populations. And I think it's something we should uh, think about. Um, Would you mind repeating that? Suggestions from people in the gay community that AIDS have become too much a focus for the gay community, that the gay community should not spend so much time on AIDS, seem to, they have been uh, repeated recently, and it seems to me that they only really surfaced with AIDS becoming more uh, predominant in the black and Hispanic community. When Well, do you want to... The controversy is that, that there have been arguments about whether or not the gay community should be less involved in the AIDS controversy, okay. in the AIDS fight. Okay. And that argument only ro arose with AIDS becoming more predominantly marked in the black and Hispanic community. In other words, the shift of focus of the AIDS epidemic was less on the gay community and more on the black and Hispanic I don't think that's community. why. It's, I think it's because people are starting to realize that we're being remedicalized completely again. And, you know, we're now... The new police are the doctors. I mean, I think that's what's happening. Well, this is opening up a very big uh, can of worms, which uh, I really, if we had more than, than five minutes, what, excuse me? Yeah, this is, if we had more than five minutes, I'd love to go into this, but we don't. So I think I'm just going to say thank you all for coming. I think we should all give a big round of applause to the panelists. And... And let's go, let's go down to that gymnasium and do some coalition building.